Heavenly Father, we love you. We love the peace that you have brought into our lives. Before I started talking to you, just watching every, listening in my, in my head, Lord, to everything just quiet down in the room. Everybody's attention turned to you, realizing that our, our bold approach is only through your wonderful son. So we come to you boldly as your kids and tell you, we love you, Dad. We love who you are. We love who you've been to us. We love the promises that you've given to us. Lord, we get impatient with ourselves and impatient with this world. And sometimes that uh, vents out on you. But in this moment, Lord, we tell you, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for how you have transformed us. How you have caused your son to rule and reign over our minds and our hearts and our lives. How you've pressed us into his image. Our hearts cry, Lord, as we want to be fully one with you. We want to know you. We want to understand you. We want to see you. Until that day that we see you, Lord, we want to follow you. We want to bring you glory. So we trust you. We trust you in the process. Fill us with your spirit now and give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're coming here to Isaiah, and we could, we could sit in this text in a variety of different ways. Uh, we could sit in it in, in Isaiah's context and his time and exactly what's being communicated there. We're not going to do that this morning because I really want us to focus on a, a few things. One, uh, through this text, I want us to see Jesus. As we go through Genesis this morning, I want us to pay attention to who Jesus is. We've gathered here this morning so that we can know him. Not just this cognitive understanding, but we could, our hearts could swell in love and adoration and, and, and you know, that we'd be an intentional in our pursuit of him. So here in Isaiah, uh, we're going to focus in on just who Jesus is, but Jesus has a mission. He has a focus. He ha there's a reason behind who he is and what he has done. Um, but then at the same time as we're looking at the Lord and as we're looking at our relationship with him individually and corporately together, um, I want to use this passage here in Isaiah to reveal a couple of hearts as we go back and we look at Jacob and Esau as brothers. Because we're hitting the point in Genesis where Jacob is now coming back and he finally meets his brother who desired to kill him 20 years prior. So we'll sit in that in a minute, but the, the revelation, the contrast we want to see between, uh, we want to pay attention between Jacob and Esau this morning and this, will, the, this passage here in Isaiah 61 helps give some of this context. So here it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Now for context, the me, this is Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he goes to Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue on Sabbath day, He's an itinerant preacher. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. And he, as he unrolls this scroll, he finds this particular passage in Isaiah. And Jesus reads through this. So the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, is upon Jesus. Why? The reason. Because the Lord Yahweh has anointed me. Why has he anointed you? To preach to communicate, to herald this good news, good tidings to the poor. Now, as we look at the description here, we can talk about the physical descriptions of, of poverty, um, and we could also talk about the spiritual condition, and both are being discussed. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon Jesus. We see that occur at his baptism. Here, because the Lord has anointed him for this reason to preach good news to the poor, the Father has sent me, Jesus, to heal the brokenhearted. He has anointed me and sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He has anointed me and sent me 
to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now right there, this is, that's the quote that Jesus gives as he's teaching in the synagogue that day. He rolls the scroll back up, he gives it back, and he goes and sits down. And everybody is looking at him. And then it says that he begins to teach him. This, had, this what he just spoke, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And it says that the people that are listening, that they're amazed and they're, they're astonished at his gracious words. But then, this is in Nazareth. This is his hometown. So people are, we know Jesus. We know his dad. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know his, his brothers and his sisters. We know this guy. And this is where Jesus starts to communicate that a prophet is accepted in the grander culture, but in his own hometown, he's not. But then he starts to relay this idea that uh, in the Old Testament, during Elijah's time, God sent Elijah to all the way to Sidon, so to a Gentile area, to a pagan area in the north. And God provided for a widow in the midst of this famine, not a Jewish widow, even though there are plenty of Jewish widows, but he sent, them, he sent Elijah to this, Jew, uh, this non-Jewish Gentile pagan widow in an area outside of the land. And that's a, that was offensive to his audience as he's listening. Then he communicates the same thing. God sent Elisha, well, he sent Naaman to Elisha. Naaman was a Syrian. He's the, there were many lepers in the time, in, in the land of Israel, in the time of Elisha. But the leper that was healed was a foreigner, was a Syrian. Again, this, this, this emotion, Jesus uh, reading this passage, communicating who he is, the purpose of him, of him being sent by the Father, the purpose of his anointing, the message that he was proclaiming, the healings that he was doing. This is who I am. This is being fulfilled in your hearing today. And then there's this contrast, though, of he's not being accepted by them. He is being rejected by them. He says some hard things to them that they don't like, that at one moment they're saying that these are gracious words, and at the end of this passage, they're dragging him to a cliff to throw him off of it in rejection of who Jesus Christ is. They already have the testimony of what he's done healing-wise. Just in the very initial um, uh, scenes of his, of his ministry, they know what's going on. They know the testimony. He was only able to do a few miracles and a few healings, it says there, in Nazareth because of their unbelief. And I'm pausing on this in the different reactions to Jesus because as we sit back in Jacob and Esau's life, we have two different reactions to them. We have two different reactions coming from them in regards to who God is that we'll sit in detail in a minute. So Jesus pauses right here. He stops quoting right in mid-sentence of Isaiah 61 verse 2 to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The rest of the sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, if you know anything about uh, Old Testament, the acceptable year of the Lord, this is the year of Jubilee where the, the, flay, the slaves are set free, uh, property is returned back to its original owners, just all the context that is there, that's what the acceptable year of the Lord is. And then the other side of that coin, it's, there's also a day of vengeance coming from God. And continues in his purpose. He has been anointed and he has been sent to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, another name for Jerusalem. Look at this great exchange, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That, the purpose, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Again, the imagery of the poetry and the prophecy that's going on here, when you talk about a tree, a tree that is being planted intentionally, it's being watered, that tree is, there's a purpose for that tree. It's to bring about the fruit in, uh, that it was created to produce. So this is the same thing. When we have that relationship with the Lord, we can trust that as he has created us, as he has saved us, as he is leading us, he will bring about the fruits of righteousness, of his righteousness in 
our lives in his timing. And we watch this. We watch Jacob as this tree of righteousness this morning. Um, we'll, get into the, we'll get into it. But a powerful, powerful picture in Jacob in the transformation from this man who was a liar and a deceiver and is now clothed in the righteousness of God. Verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. Things that were destroyed because of their disobedience. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations, look at this, of many generations. Sit in that's in our own culture. Verse 5. Strangers shall, shall stand and feed your flocks and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plants your plowmen and your vine dressers. Again, this is a Jew and Gentile are getting saved. Uh, this is, uh, we believe, talking about millennial kingdom that's coming when Jesus comes and rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. Verse six, you shall be named, not just uh, uh, the sons of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, but all of them. You shall be named the priests of our Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. So the tribute that's going to come to the king at that time from all nations. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. God, for I, the Lord... I love justice. It says, I hate robbery for burnt offering. I want to just briefly, this idea that God loves justice. Remember in Genesis 18 when he chose Abraham, that Abraham was in the way of the Lord. He knew that Abraham would communicate, that he would not just do, but that he would also teach his household to do righteousness Injustice. So here God conveying to us, he loves what is just, for he is just. But it says that he hates robbery for burnt offering. And this is this idea. So a burnt offering, this is the sacrifice that is commanded by the Lord to be brought to him so that you can approach him, so that you can be cleansed from your sins. And think about what this is saying in context with Jesus. There is no other approach to God other than through the sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has made us accepted into God's presence for all eternity. And God here saying, I hate robbery for sacrifice. This idea that I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring my own sacrifice. I'm gonna, I'll take Jesus and I'll sacrifice him afresh or I'll take my own offering or I'll, uh, rather than coming to God, God's way, I'm going to take from another. I'm going to use another's gifts to bring to the Lord. This is all the imagery that is being conveyed here to us. It's something that there, there, every other sacrifice, every other offering, every other attempt to come to God is an abomination to him other than through Jesus Christ. Again, I camp on that because we're going to watch Esau today. Um, Esau doesn't have a relationship with God and it's really sad. I will, I will direct their work in truth. And will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. And here in verse 10 and 11, we can, in this I will statement, we can sit in this personally and we can also sit in this in in Jacob's mind. Um, So I want you to see both. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom, imagery Jesus, as Jesus decks himself with ornaments. And us as his bride as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. 
For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth from before all the nations. What, a, what, a, what an incredible promise. Again, when our king comes, when Jesus comes, he is going to cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. And we have a choice today whether that righteousness and whether that praise, whether that rejoicing, whether that joy is something that's going to rise out of us. And back in verse 3 again, this is a, I titled this morning's message, Beauty and Ashes. In verse 3, we have this idea, again, this great exchange for ashes. For, in ashes, it's, it's this idea of mourning. Uh, in this culture, if somebody was in mourning, somebody died, sin, whatever it is, they, they cover themselves in ashes and dust as a sign of mourning. So instead of ashes, beauty. Instead of mourning, joy. Instead of a spirit of heaviness and oppression, a spirit of praise this great exchange but in regards to looking at beauty and ashes we're gonna see turn to Genesis 33 we watch Esau remain in ashes we've watched Jacob transition from ashes to beauty and the the what Jacob does in this passage is one of the most beautiful pictures. And again, I've, I've uh, um, is, is we sit in, in Jacob today. Um, so I've been, I've been a Christian for 20 years. I've read the book of Genesis a lot. Um, it's a book that I come back to often. I love, there's so much application. The stories are incredible. Uh, so many other passages bring you back to the beginnings. So I've probably read through Genesis a good 20 times on my own, at least over the last 20 years. Uh, I've sat in many different teachings. I've sat through teachings of Jacob's life. Um, as I have sat in the study of Jacob's life this time, um, I have seen him through a whole new lens. And the passage that we go through this morning, this is, again, this is one of the most incredible pictures of true repentance uh, that I see in the Bible. And it's something that I've missed for the last 20 years. Um, and again, God has his purposes and all of that. And um, as, I, as I read commentaries on this, about 75% of them highlighted uh, this particular thing that I'm talking about that we'll get into, and 25% of them ignored it. So I guess I've been listening to the 25% for, uh, for 20 years. But now we're going to we'll press into the other 75% this morning because this is an awesome picture. So remember the scene. Jacob has fleed from his father, from his mother, from the wrath of his brother 20 years prior. He's been living with his mother's brother, Laban, and all the story there. He's been serving Laban for 20 years. He has just left Laban with the four wives and with his 11 sons and the one daughter that we know about. And he's leaving in fear and Laban chased him down. So there's all this closure of life there. And now as he is coming to Esau, he's coming to the brother that he was running away from his wrath, from his murderous rage 20 years prior. He doesn't know what this interaction is going to look like, so he's afraid. He's being obedient to God. He's pursuing God in prayer. He knows that he is not worthy. He left with a staff in his hand. And God, look at how gracious you have been to me over these last 20 years. This is what you've told me to do. I'm here, Lord, provide for me. But he's been sending all these gifts, 550 animals in number. And then as he's sending all these before him, we had last week this, this interaction, this wrestling between he and who we believe it to be Jesus. Hosea tells us this man that wrestled with him is both God and an angel. Uh, you know, so we think that this is Jesus in the flesh wrestling with Jacob and gives him this name change. No longer shall you be called Jacob, there in verse 28 of chapter 32, but Israel, God 
is the one who is striving with us. We are not striving with God. And again, we talked about last week just the necessity to, to engage in this struggle, engage in the relationship with the Lord. He could, he could crush us at any moment, but he is patient with us. He is, he is engaged with us in a way where he is working out of us all those things that ought not to be there. And he is working into us his son who desperately needs to be in each one of us. And in this, we need to engage in uh, this relationship and the wrestling that's there. Just again, all the imagery that's going on. Name change is important because now even, even God changes his name to Israel in 28 and then in verse 29, it's right back to using Jacob's name again. In verse 32, it says, the children of Israel, as we begin chapter 33 here, it's using Jacob. It's weird because when God renames Abram to Abraham, do you ever call Abraham Abram? Never. Do you ever call Israel Jacob? 99% of the time. So there's some idea as you go through the word of God when the, word, when the name Jacob is used sometimes, not often, but sometimes it's referring to the old man, to the old character. And when it's referring to Israel, it's the new man and the new character, the new name that he is, that's been given to him, that he is underneath the sovereignty of God. Um, I have no idea why it uses Jacob in chapter 33, but... His name, Jacob, throughout. So now Jacob. So remember, this is a night of wrestling. Um, he has been, Jacob's had 20 years of issues. Um, and he's just had this evening where he's been wrestling with God. And I guarantee he needs a nap, just like all of us do this morning because of stupid daylight savings time. But here Jacob, he lifts up his eyes and he looks. So again, this is a, uh, you know, Jesus stopped wrestling with, you know, the day's, the day's coming, the sun's coming up. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a brother to meet, Jacob. So here it's like, it's like it just ended and Jacob lifts up his eyes and he looks and there's Esau coming. And he sees him on the other side of the river. And it says, and with him were 400 men. There's been a change here in Jacob where the 400 men coming with Esau were the, the source of fear in chapter 32. Um, I think Jacob is in a position of great contentment and trust in God at this point. And it says he divides the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two maidservants. And he puts the maidservants and their children in front, Leah and her children behind, and Rachel and Joseph last. Then it says he crosses over before them. So what he's doing is he's putting his family in the order of status and in the order of affection because he's going to present his family to his brother Esau formally. And then it says that Jacob crosses over before them. And then he gives this picture that he is bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So again, the, the heart that we're watching in Jacob is this position of, of humility. Um, this, again, this is a very Eastern culture where he's bowing himself down repetitively to his brother, uh, conveying physically and, and mentally and just in the circumstance of their relationship, I am your servant, I am, I am uh, not your superior, but your inferior. So again, this, uh, the transition here that you need to sit in and remember is always going back to chapter 27 of Genesis because when Jacob stole the blessing from his brother in deceit, what was the blessing that Isaac pronounced over Jacob? Jacob, your brother Esau is gonna bow down before you. And now here's the exact opposite where Jacob is bowing down to his brother. But look at Esau, verse four. It says, Esau ran to meet him he pulled out a knife and shoved it into his belly, and the 400 men slaughtered his wives and children. No? Could that have been what we read, potentially? Look at the impressive character of Esau. I'm serious when I say impressive. How Esau acts to his brother right now is greater than many Christians treat one another in this room. How many of you are holding on to bitterness and to anger and to hurt? Somebody legitimately did you wrong. And they're your brother 
or they're your sister in Christ. And God has commanded you to pursue them, to forgive them, to seek reconciliation with them, just like you have reconciliation with God. Esau has every, and again, this, this guy's character, he's hairy and he's manly and he's, he's just, he's like a big oaf, the description that we have of him. And look at his impeccable character here. Jay, it says that like, uh, he's, he's had all the animals come to him. He's coming with the 400. We're not sure exactly why. These a big question mark. But it's uh, even as he sees, uh, you know, th- this is going to be, again, a large traveling party. He sees all the family members or whatever. It's like all Esau sees is Jacob. He has eyes for Jacob only here. So Esau runs to meet Jacob, and he embraces him, and he falls on his neck, and he kisses him, and they wept. Again, this is, this is brothers who have not seen each other in 20 years. Brothers who separated in, in pain, Jacob's sin, Esau's wrath, desire to kill his brother, uh, meditating. I'm, when dad dies, this, my brother's dead. I mean, this is what Esau was meditating on. And here, again, total, total contrast to uh, what we would anticipate Esau coming with these 400 men. He embraces his brother, falls on his neck, kisses him. They're weeping. Again, just very, uh, you know, the, the cultural things that are going on here, you have, you have to be able to sit in that a little bit. But again, they have this moment together as brothers. It says that Esau here in verse 5, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the women and the children. And he says to his brother, who are these? Now you can see him just with his arm around his brother. They're embracing. They're wiping the snot and the tears away. They've had their moment. And he, and he finally sees the rest of the people around. So they're still embracing one another. Who are these, Jacob? Who are these, my brother? And Jacob responds. So he said, the children... Whom God has graciously given your servant. Sees his kids as a, as a gracious and compassionate gift from God. Amen to that. Then the maidservants came near, they and their children, and they bowed down. And Leah also came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph and Rachel came near, and they bowed down. I didn't mention it the first time, but there in verse 2, it doesn't give a name for any of the other sons other than Joseph. And it particularly highlights Joseph. And does it again the second time, particularly highlighting Joseph. And this is the Bible's way of preparing our mind and our attention to Joseph, who is going to uh, the, the final, you know, I don't know how many chapters uh, Joseph's life is. It's a good 15 chapters of the remaining of the book of Genesis are focused in on his life. But even as we watch Jacob in an incredible moment here, um, Jacob still has issues And one of the issues that he has is he still has favoritism towards one of his sons. And this causes a tremendous amount of damage in the future. But highlighting Joseph's name here, this is preparing us for what's going to come up in the account of Jacob's life and in the account of Joseph's life. They're all bowing down in submission to the brother of their father, the brother of their husband. And Esau says, what do, you, what do you mean by all this company which I met? You know, all these animals, these different droves that are coming. What do you, what do you mean by all this? And Jacob said, no, please. Oh, wait, sorry, Esau. Where am I? Verse 8. What do you mean by this? There we go. And he said, these are to find favor. These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. And Esau responds, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Esau's words here, I have enough. It's, I have, I have abundance. I've got, I, have, I have enough herds of my own. So Esau's conveying here how God has blessed him, right? I have, I have enough. I have what I need. And then hidden in here where it says, keep what you have for yourself. Um, 
On one side of it, on the surface, this is just, you know, I don't need these animals, Jacob. You keep them for yourself. I have enough. I have an abundance. There is also, and again, we're not sure. This is like reading between the lines. But there's an idea here when uh, that Esau is also talking about the birthright and the blessing that Jacob took deceitfully. That Jacob took advantage of his brother for the birthright, took the blessing by deceit. Here Esau is just, I don't want it. I don't want the birthright. I don't want the blessing, it's already yours, keep what you have. And we can see both sides in that. And Jacob responds here in verse 10, no, please, if I have found favor, if I have found grace in your sight, then receive, take, accept my present from my hand, accept my gift from my hand. Inasmuch as I have seen your face, as though I had seen the face of God, and you were pleased with me. Please take my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt gracious with me because I have enough. So he urged him and he took it. Now this is, this is one of those, you can read it and just move on to the next passage and uh, you know, flow through the story, but this is, this is the incredible picture of the transformation that has occurred in Jacob. And it's not just been at this moment in the wrestling with God, it's the change and transformation that's occurred over the last 20 years of his life. But look at Jacob's response to his brother, no please, Esau, if I have found grace in your sight, please take it. Accept it. Receive it. It's my gift to you. And then his heart is, inasmuch as I have seen your face, he's conveying to his brother. Um, they haven't seen each other for 20 years. All he knows is his brother desired to murder him when he left. So he has an imagination of what his brother's face ought to look like towards him. And Jacob just named this place in the prior chapter, the prior section, just the night before, right? He saw the face of God, Penuel. I saw God's face and I lived. And he's conveying again Jesus' attitude, Jesus' heart, Jesus' love, Jesus' passion for Jacob. He saw him face to face and wrestled with him. It wasn't this angry and get this Jacob out of you, you know. It wasn't that kind of face. He saw God's love. He saw his acceptance. He saw his forgiveness. He saw his tenderness. He saw his compassion. And now he's communing. He, this just happened the night before. And now he's telling his brother, Your face to me was just like God's face to me last night. You have received me in love. I see your tears. I see your tenderness. I see your forgiveness. I see that, yeah, I really made you mad. But I see that you've changed in your attitude towards me. As I looked in your face, it's as though I saw the face of God. And you weren't angry with me. You were pleased with me. You were delighted with me. Look at verse 11 and look at what it says. Please take my blessing. So all through this last chapter, this chapter, he's sending what? He's sending gifts. He's sending presents. Specific word in the Hebrew. This word here, it's please take my gift, and some of your translations are going to say that. But this word blessing here, this is the exact same blessing, the exact same word that is used earlier on when Isaac says, Jacob came with deceit and he stole your blessing. He took it away. And then those same words come out of Esau's mouth. My brother took away my blessing. Look at, the, look at the transition that's occurred in Jacob's life where 20 years prior, he was willing through his own lust, through his own desires, through his own wants, he was willing to corrupt his relationship with his dad, with his mom, with his brother to get what he wanted through whatever means necessary. I mean, this is the picture that's painted of him, right? He took it intentionally, on purpose, And now the transformation 20 years down the road, he's coming back to the one who he took from and he's looking at his brother. He says, take it, take my blessing. And where Esau says, I have enough, I have abundance, Jacob's response to Esau is, I 
have everything. You see the difference? Jacob's, Esau's content in life. God has blessed him materially. He has an abundance. He has an, I don't need these animals. He's going to receive it. He did take it. And that taking of it seems to be a, a balancing of accounts between the brothers. Jacob is now truly paying him uh, for the birthright. He is truly paying him for the blessing. Esau is willing to take it, and he is willing to walk away and be satisfied with the earthly possession in abundance, in an impeccable forgiving character towards his brother, right? I mean, it's, it's an impressive forgiveness that he is demonstrating uh, towards Esau. Jacob, on the other hand, is now, he is free from all this earthly abundance. I have everything because I have God. I have the God of our father Abraham. I have the God of our father Isaac. I used to be Jacob. He has changed me. He has forgiven me. He has cleansed me. I don't need these animals. I don't need this stuff. I don't need your birthright. I don't need your blessing because I have God's blessing. I have a relationship with him. Take my blessing. And again, this, this, is, a, this is a picture. When John the Baptist, when, when the multitudes are coming to him and in the Gospel of Luke, we see he, he calls everybody a brood of vipers. And, and I think it's in Mark, he just calls the Pharisee the brood of vipers. But he's, as John is preaching the kingdom of God to the people, He's telling them to bear fruits in their lives that are worthy of repentance. As we talked about in Isaiah, that God is the one who makes us trees of righteousness, that we are going to bear the fruit of righteousness just through the natural product of having a relationship with him. We can see over the last 20 years of, of Jacob's life watching righteousness, God's righteousness working into his life and into his character this final wrestling the night before, uh, resigning to fear, come what may. I have everything because I am God's. His life is bearing the fruit of his relationship with God. And that just didn't begin the night before. This has been a 20-year journey and a 20-year process in his life. And I think it's an incredible picture of love. I think it's an incredible picture of reconciliation. I think it's an incredible picture of what true repentance looks like. Jacob became a beautiful man. Esau, on the other hand, verse 12. Esau said, let us take our journey. Let us go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are weak and the flocks and herds which are nursing are with me. And if the men should drive them hard one day, all the flock will die. Please let my Lord go on ahead before his servant. I will lead on slowly at a pace which the livestock that, uh, that go before me and the children are able to endure until I come to my Lord, note this, in Seir. And Esau said, now let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. Jacob responds, what need is there? What purpose? There's no need. Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, which is south of where they are at the Jabbok River, uh, you know, coming out of Jordan, about 20 miles north of the Dead Sea. Uh, it flows into the Jordan River. So they're on the west side of the Jordan River right there at the Jabbok uh, River. Esau's going south, going home, which note that his home is not in the land of Canaan. He has already left his father, which means he has already abandoned his birthright. He has abandoned the blessing. He's abandoned uh, the land that has been given by God to his dad. He doesn't want anything to do with it. He's gone to his own land, and he's gone his own way. And then in verse 17, it says, Jacob journeyed to Succoth, Sukoth, built himself a house and made booze for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukoth. Sukoth, you pronounce it. Um, so, but listen to what's going on here. So it's, it's hard to understand um, 
how these brothers part. This is the last time we see Esau. He shows up with an Isaac dies and just mentions that he's there to bury Isaac with Jacob. When dad dies, we get a genealogy of Isaac or of Esau, and we don't have any other information in regards to Esau, but we have a lot of information in regards to his descendants. When Esau takes his journey south, and Jacob is just conveyed to his brother, hey, I'm going to come to you and see her, but at my own pace, at the pace that the animals can go, at the pace that the kids can go. Uh, I'll see you in a bit is kind of what the prior sentence has left us at, yeah? But when, J- uh, when Esau goes south, guess what Jacob does? He turns north. So Sukkoth is now, he had just crossed over the Jabbok River. Uh, he'd already sent all the droves ahead and all that information. He just crossed over the river to meet his brother. He's already crossed the river, right? And now his brother goes to the south. Jacob turns around and he crosses back over the river again and he goes to Sukkoth. Sukkoth is on the east side of the Jordan River. So, and again, this is, this is kind of like the nap that Jacob needs. We're not sure how long he's here. Tradition tells us about a year and a half, but that's just tradition. But for whatever reason, Jacob takes up residence outside of the land of Canaan. He's right there at the border. We don't know why, but he just, he builds himself a house. He builds some temporary dwellings and shelters for his animals. And it's like Jacob just takes a year and a half vacation. Um, It's been a stressful 20 years. But then here in verse 18, note this, Jacob came safely to the city of Jacob. Remember all the way back in chapter 28 when God met him at Bethel. He makes this comment to God. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put upon so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And here we watch the conclusion of that matter. 20 years later, Jacob comes, he's in the land. Uh, Shechem is, it's to the north of Jerusalem. It's really far north of where Isaac is. Um, For whatever reason, he doesn't go to dad yet, but he comes safely into the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. And when he came, uh, when he came from Padan Aram, um, he pitched his tent before the city and he bought the parcel of land. So this is uh, like like Abraham bought uh, the burial plot. Here we have Jacob buying a parcel of land. This buying of the land means uh, because it's a permanent uh, transaction that's occurring in the culture. Um, As he's buying this parcel of land, the whole community, the whole tribe, the whole clan that they're buying it from would be involved. This is going to play into the next chapter. This is where he pitches his tent and he buys it from the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then here, it's, this, it's Jacob's heart. Then he erected an altar. He erected an altar there, and he called it El Elohi Israel. God, the God of Israel. So this is, uh, again, not just tying the last 20 years of his life with this altar, but now we get to tie this all the way back to when Abraham first comes into the land of Canaan in Genesis 12. The first place that he comes to is Shechem. And God appears to him in Shechem. And there Abraham builds an altar to God in Shechem. Uh, we'll get into the details of Shechem next week because its, its history is interesting. Because when Jacob comes into, or not Jacob, when Joseph Uh, brings the children of Israel into the land, Uh, Shechem is not a city that is conquered. It's not a city that is burned. And even the archaeological record tells us that. So all the other cities around uh, around this time in archaeology, they were all destroyed. They were all burned as the children of Israel were coming in, but not the, ch- not the city of Shechem. And here, it's at Shechem. This is where they, they erect an altar there and all the children of Israel. So again, it's, there's big question marks of, of why. And we get some of that a little bit later on. That's a bunch of side history that you don't need. But as we sit in beauty and ashes this morning, again, we're watching Jacob and we watch again this radical transformation that's occurred in his life. And we're watching the fruit of repentance uh, come out of him. What is within us is what comes out. 
what's in our heart, what's in our mind. These are the words that come out. These are the actions that we perform of what's churning on here. So we've watched him change. We've watched him change from a man who was a rotten scoundrel to a man who is beautifully clothed in the righteousness of God through faith in God. And Esau, we haven't been able to watch the details of his life, but as we watch Esau, Esau goes from this man who is filled with murderous rage, who welcomes his brother with love and affection, with forgiveness, with tenderness, and there is a worldly reconciliation there. But the snapshot that we get of Esau's life, Hebrews 12 tells us that Esau was a profane person. Esau was a worthless man. This is what the New Testament tells us about Esau. Because he despised his birthright. Did God love Esau? Did God value Esau? So when the New Testament tells us that Esau was a worthless man, it doesn't mean that God did not value him. It doesn't mean that God did not provide for him. It doesn't mean that God did not love him. God demonstrated his love for Esau on the cross, just like he demonstrated his love for you while you were a sinner, while you were like the old Jacob, while you were like the murderous Esau. That's when Jesus died for us. But the character of Esau, he looks at that and says, I don't want it. Jacob, you take it. You live in the land that this God of our fathers has given. I'm going to go take what I want over here and see her. Bye. It's the same heart there that we see of Jesus' countrymen, of the town in which he grew up in. It's the exact same heart where they hear him. They hear the testimony. They hear about his miracles. And we can do the same thing. We can hear about what Jesus did through the testimony of others. We can hear about his death on the cross and what that means. But if he stayed dead, so what? Everybody else dies. It's that testimony of his resurrection that, wait, something unique happened to this man. Who is this man? And this is the testimony that the apostles went out with. This is what we sit in in the New Testament in regards to his resurrection. It's verification of who he is. But we can sit in that information and be just like Esau and remain in ashes and end up of no value and worthless because we look at Jesus, we look at who he is, what he said, what he did, what he's going to do, who he is today, and just be a, a good person. Esau was a, that, that's a, that's a good guy right there in chapter 33. What an incredible heart of forgiveness. That's a good guy right there. How many good guys and good gals do you know that just, when, you, when, when Jesus comes on, there's just nothing there. I don't want your God. I don't want your Savior. I don't want his forgiveness. I don't need his forgiveness. I have what I want. I'm, I'm happy. I'm a good person. I'm forgiving. I'm giving. I'm courteous. I don't take from others. But that heart of God where he says, I hate robbery for burnt offering... Esau is attempting to take care of his own righteousness in his own way, be his own God, and remains in ashes. He does not cross over that great exchange of, Jesus, give me your beauty. This world is a mournful place. It is a decaying place. It is a dying place. Again, this is the testimony that's being conveyed of the life that we have in Christ. But it's something that has to be taken. Jesus, you have to, just this is what we do with communion every single week. It's not some religious act that we're doing just because of religious tradition. 
Jesus says, as often as you come together, I want you to take me to yourself. Take my body, my valuable body, my priceless body that was given for you. I created you. I intentionally became like you to give to you myself as sacrifice. Take it to yourself. Take me to yourself. The cup, this is my blood. It's for the remission of sins. Remission, it's, it's liberty, it's freedom. There's a washing and a cleansing that has occurred through his sacrifice that it can occur through nothing else. No cancer, no death, remission. I am free, I am cleansed. It is never to return. I am now clothed in the garments of righteousness. Through faith in Jesus Christ, I am a tree of righteousness. In the men's study this week, this is something that hit me. And again, I keep meditating on this. The guys that are in the room know, but Greg Dieter brought this up. But when Jesus says that to Philip, Philip, do you not know that when you have seen me, you have seen the Father? And Greg brought up the question, well, can you say that? So through faith in Jesus Christ, we are told in the New Testament that God the Father, God the Son Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit have taken up residence and dwell within us. That we are now one with God. That the words that come out of this heart and escape this mouth, they are to be the very words that God is leading us to speak in life. That the works that we do, these are to be the very things that are coming out of us. The fruit that is coming out of this relationship with the Lord. Did you have the boldness to say to anybody else in the room, Michael, do you not know that when you see me, you've seen your God? That floored me. Do you not know when you look at your other brothers and sisters in this room? That you're, and again, you're not looking at God. Don't get weird with it. You're looking at God in them. You're looking, at, you're looking at a Jacob that used to be something else. And as we look at one another and brothers and sisters, we're all in process. Some of us are babies. Some of us are weird. Some of us have issues. All of us have issues. We're all in the sanctification process. But here as we look at one another, do you not know that you're looking at God in that person? The, the new man, the new woman that is now clothed in his righteousness and his holiness. And again, and, and we can never make assumptions about one another. And this is why, you know, we, we sit in the contrast continually in life. Jacob is set before us as an example of a man who exchanged his ashes for beauty. Esau is a man that gives us an example of an individual who chose to hold on to his ashes. And the testimony of his life for all eternity is he ended in worthlessness. Apart from a relationship, a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're holding on to ashes. And the exchange, again, you have to take Jesus to yourself. And it's not just the moment of salvation. It's just not that initial step, right? It's taking him to ourself every single day. He's my Lord. He's my master. He's transforming me. He's leading me. He's changing me. He's made me beautiful. I'm not who I was. I'm not yet who I want to be. But, oh, boy, it's coming. I have hope and I have assurance. Beauty or ashes, your choice.